From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE can help you manage your money in different currencies. With WISE, you can send money to your cousin in Australia with ease, travel internationally without having to brave an airport currency exchange desk, and take away the guesswork that goes along with converting currencies. WISE lets you send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate, all without any hidden fees. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com. WISE dot com. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business. It's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners, too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Can a healthy society really have people doing dirty work? I'm Jamil Smith, and I'm your host for Vox Conversations. Dirty work is one of those phrases which loses its meaning the more that we use it. It might conjure in your mind that Steely Dan hit about a secret affair or Tony Soprano singing it in the car. I don't want to do your dirty work no more. I'm a fool to do your We're more likely to hear the words dirty work from anchors on political shows. Now we're learning of another teacher's union doing the dirty work for Democrats. Just something to say to the people doing the dirty work so we can feel better about not doing it ourselves. Sports announcers use it to refer to the relatively thankless work of offensive linemen or players at the end of an NBA bench. Uh, I can rebound block shots, uh, you know, do all the dirty work. Um, Play the run well, do the dirty work, and, um, you know, let the linebackers flow and make plays. But what is actual dirty work? independent of these cliches. Journalist Al Press reminds readers in his recent book, Dirty Work, Essential Jobs and the Hidden Toll of Inequality in America. Press has spent the last few years reporting about the lives of people doing truly unappreciated and often hazardous work, work that upholds oppressive institutions, often in circumstances that are beneath the dignity of any worker. As Press describes in his book, These are the folks making low wages and doing things like hacking up animals on the floors of slaughterhouses and enforcing brutal border patrol policies. I spoke with AOL Press about the people whom American society demands do the dirty work for others and how we're all complicit in their plight. I wanted to know whether he thinks the state of work is broken in the United States, whether we can put it back together, and do we really even want to? A.L. Press, welcome to Box Conversations. Thanks so much. Great to be here. So, A.L., tell me, just plain and simple, what is dirty work? Well, dirty work in my book is a little different than the colloquial expression most people know. Um, I think when most people hear that phrase, they think of an unpleasant job that is kind of physically dirtying, like, you know, hauling the garbage off the streets. Right. But in my book, dirty work refers to something different. It's 
unethical or morally troubling activities that society tacitly condones and depends upon, but generally doesn't want to hear too much about. In that respect, I think it's really interesting that you start off the book with a quotation from James Baldwin, and I'll read that for the audience. The powerless must do their own dirty work. The powerful have it done for them. So are we speaking here strictly in terms of what benefits the powerful, or are we talking also about folks who don't necessarily want to do a particular thing that keeps society running um, and just kind of want to forget it? Well, I mean— the Baldwin quote is there because I think, as so often is the case, he eloquently captures, I don't think he's referring to dirty work as I'm referring to it in my book, but he's capturing there something very basic, which is that when you have to dirty your hands and you have a lot of power, you get someone else to do it for you, right? You, you have the luxury mm-hmm. to kind of dissociate yourself from this kind of unpleasant activity. Whereas if you don't have power, you often find yourself being the person who's on the receiving end of that order to do the dirty work. And again, just to go back to this theme of what I mean by dirty work, you know, when we think about America's prison system, who runs that system? Mm. Who works in that system? And I don't just mean the guards. I also mean the mental health aides, uh, because, you know, a lot of my book takes place in the mental health ward of a prison. You know, or we think about America's industrial slaughterhouses, the kill floors of those slaughterhouses. Another place where this activity is going on, it's very distant from so many people who know it's there and in a way condone it or depend on it, but don't have to do it themselves. And so that Baldwin quote, I think, kind of sets us up for thinking about Dirty work through the prism of power, because it really is through the prism of power that my own exploration of it takes place. You've spent years researching the lives and the work of these people who cannot afford to quit their jobs, despite the indignities that they're suffering in witnessing. Tell me a little bit about who these people are. Yeah, so, you know, to go back to the slaughterhouse example or the prison example, who they are is generally folks who take what I call jobs of last resort. Mm -hmm. They're not society's elites. They don't have advanced degrees from places like Stanford and Harvard. And they end up doing a job that is concentrated and, and geographically located in less advantaged parts of the country. So when we think about prisons, for example, during the prison boom in this country, it's no accident that so many prisons were built in more depressed rural areas of the country that had kind of seen their mills and factories go and saw building a prison as a way to create jobs for the economy. But what that ends up creating, and it's not dissimilar in the case of these slaughterhouses, again, remote areas, kind of poorer areas of the country, what ends up happening is the people who fill those jobs are the less advantaged. And, you know, it's not that they can't leave the jobs, but they often have very bad choices in front of them. So they feel compelled to stay for one reason or another. You mentioned in your epilogue that inequality also shapes the geography of dirty work and who is held responsible for it. In terms of the jobs that you cover in this book, you're talking not just about folks who work in slaughterhouses or in prisons, but also folks who are operating drone strikes. How does, in fact, the inequality that we experience in this country, the inequity, 
shape the geography? How does it determine where that dirty work is done? So the way that I think responsibility ends up being accorded is that it's not dissimilar from the story of Abu Ghraib, you know, the infamous torture scandal that took place during the Iraq war back two decades ago. Mm -hmm. That story came to light because of these photographs of reservists torturing detainees who were held in these just humiliating, awful positions. Who got blamed for that? Not a single senior U.S. official, not one, right? Mm. It was Lindy England. It was Charles Grainer, right? It was the low-ranking reservists who, in effect, carried out the policies that were sanctioned by the Bush administration and, to no small extent, by the country that voted George W. Bush into office not once but twice. But the point being, I see that metaphor and, and who got blamed in that case playing out over and over again when I looked at dirty work in this country. My book opens with the story of a mentally ill, incarcerated man in Florida named Darren Rainey, who is literally tortured to death. He is locked in a scalding shower by a group of prison guards in a prison called the Dade Correctional Institution. It's a horrible crime. Certainly the guards who were involved in that crime should be held accountable. But it's notable that no one of higher rank as in the Abu Ghraib story, no one of higher rank was held accountable for Darren Rainey's death. In fact, a lot of people who were in high-ranking positions at that time got promoted or, you know, ended up benefiting. In fact, the governor of Florida at the time was Rick Scott. And as we know, Rick Scott is, is now a senator from Florida. So I think that one of the ways that inequality plays out in the story of dirty work in this country is that on the rare occasions when the curtain is pulled back and we see this dirty work going on, the blame goes to the lowest ranking people at the bottom. And that's very convenient for society, right? It's mm -hmm. like, oh yeah, there were these awful guards. Wow, they, they did this horrible thing. But why did this happen? Well, it happened because Florida, like so many states, has turned its prisons into its largest mental health institutions. Florida spends just about less than any other state. I think it was second least on mental health services at the time of Rainey's death. They had the third largest prison system in the country. So where are the resources going and what kind of institutional and structural arrangements have been made to, in effect, create the conditions so that abuses like the ones I describe in my book, both with Darren Rainey as the victim and many other people as the victim, these abuses are not surprising. These abuses are predictable. And it's the folks at the bottom who we can conveniently blame, but who are part of a, a much larger system of dirty work that I think all of us are to some extent accountable for. Right. And to that note, I think it's really interesting what you wrote about specifically the drone strikers. And how delegating that work to, let's just call them dirty workers for the service of this conversation, and this is your writing, serves the interests of a disengaged public that doesn't want to think too much about the endless wars being fought in its name and, thanks to the drone campaign, doesn't have to. Of course, we could say the same about the meat that we get and ends up on our plates. We can say the same about incarcerated people who we shuffle off to correctional facilities and hope that we've locked away our problems. I'm interested to know, to what extent then do we 
all share culpability in this, if we're not actively opposing this system. Yeah, well, I think the drone case really fascinated me exactly for the reason you're describing, because it is so convenient. It's so hidden, and it's kind of faded into this background noise. You know, it's like the drone strikes occasionally you'll see something on a headline you know there was this strike in afghanistan when the withdrawal from afghanistan happened that did get attention but most of the strikes don't get attention and the video footage and the information is classified right so the public has a good excuse and a good reason to say you know well I'm not responsible for that. I don't know. I never hear about it, right? I'm not even allowed to hear about it. And yet the fact of the matter is we know it happens. It's well established now. And I think this goes back to a kind of moment in Obama's presidency where he had inherited the apparatus of the war on terror. And he clearly didn't like that phrase. He made that very clear. And he wanted Guantanamo shut down. He wanted the black site prisons shut down. But there was also a lot of institutional pressure to kind of maintain the status quo to a large extent, where America can go after whoever it wants, whoever it deems an enemy in this kind of shadowy way, without too many questions asked about what happens to these people. And the drone wars fill the vacuum there, right? So drone strikes under Obama increase exponentially. Mm -hmm. And then they increase even more under Trump. And what was striking to me in writing this book, and I was, of course, talking to the folks in the drone program who do see the footage, who do see what happens in society's name, what was striking to me is there were two presidential elections that happened during the course of my writing this book. There must have been, you know, 20 to 30 debates in the primaries that I partially tuned into or read about. There wasn't a single question, not one, mm-hmm. about whether these drone wars and these drone attacks should continue, whether we should have a conversation about the moral costs of such a policy. How would we feel if other countries did this to us? None of these questions were even engaged. And to me, that's the most striking thing. And in a way, the most disturbing thing about dirty work in all the cases I look at in the book is just how disconnected society can become from this thing that is happening that is pretty fundamental to who we are. Well, it's easy, I think, for some people, I believe, to disengage saying, well, there's no changing the system. They've been shown only the quote-unquote good things that the system can do for them. And thus, we're not worried as a society about the people who you describe as these cogs in this oppressive system, folks who could be considered enablers or accomplices, but are actually more like captives. I'm interested because there's a lot there. Yeah. I'm interested if you could describe what you're trying to, to get at right there. Yeah, to go back to the prison example, and I talked about the Dade Correctional Institution and the mental health ward there. I look at and I interview the mental health aides who worked there. And someone could certainly say they were complicit in what happened to Darren Rainey. Why? Because they knew what was going on. Right. They knew that the guards at Dade were having fun, some of them, were deliberately abusing mentally ill incarcerated men in this facility and getting away with it. And, you know, you have a Hippocratic Oath, right? You have a duty to report that actually the American Psychiatric Association and other, you know, institutions affirm in such a case. 
On the other hand, as I say in the book, as I show, these were mostly women who I interviewed working in the mental health ward, and their own security, just going to work every day and running group sessions and getting from one wing of the prison to another wing, they were beholden to the security guards at this institution to make them feel they could do their jobs safely without being threatened, without being left alone in the rec yard, as one of the mental health aides was, and, and she was nearly assaulted. And what they quickly learned, these mental health aides, is that if you challenged the guards in any way, they would retaliate. And Harriet Kriskovsky, the one mental health aide who the book begins with, she at one point raises some questions about what the guards are doing because they're not letting the guys out into the yard on Sundays. And the response to that is that she's suddenly left alone in the yard. She suddenly sees that the guard who should be standing by the door when she does a group session is gone. And they're sending her a message. You cross the line by questioning us. Don't do that. And so as she told me, the lesson she learned was, don't be a witness. Pretend not to see what you're actually seeing. That's where the people I write about in the book, on the one hand, they are part of this system. They do dirty their hands. And they are responsible to some extent for what's going on. On the other hand, they're powerless, relatively speaking. They're also vulnerable, and they also suffer for what happens. I'm particularly haunted by a conversation I had with a woman named Levita Richardson, who worked at Dade. Levita is an African-American woman who used to live in the Miami area, no longer does. But when she took the job at Dade, she really was idealistic about it. She thought she could help people who society had considered, you know, beyond the pale, throwaways. And she really believed in what she was doing. She gets the job, and not long after she starts working there, she sees a group of guards pummeling an incarcerated man who is tied to a chair. And she is in terrible shock and distress. Actually, when she told me the story, this was years later, tears fill her eyes as she's talking about this. And she wanted to report it. And she wanted to, you know, get the story out. But another woman who worked there told her, listen, Levita, you can't. You can't say anything about this. You're just going to be retaliated against. And so she didn't say anything. It's those kinds of dilemmas that the folks who do the dirty work in our society face. And it's the rest of society that should think about those dilemmas because we are not disconnected from this work. We're going to take a quick break. When we're back, AL Press argues that dirty work is about more than just inequalities of race, class, and gender. It's about moral inequality. Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? 
Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then WISE might just be your answer. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate with no markups and no hidden fees. In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with WISE. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let WISE help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E.com, WISE.com. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Gray Area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Borough.com slash box. What you describe happening to Levita is a reminder of what you call moral injuries throughout the book. How would you define those? And what are some other examples of, I guess you could say, literally injury to insult? within this context. Yeah, I think that that's a central idea in my book that inequality isn't just about who earns a huge paycheck and grotesquely large bonuses that go out to folks on Wall Street and who works really hard and barely makes a living and is unable to have health benefits. That's the material side of inequality, but there's also a moral dimension to inequality. And in fact, I use the phrase moral inequality. And moral injury is part of that. It's these hidden wounds that folks like Levita sustain doing society's dirty work, doing jobs that are not only demeaning, but that put you in ethical situations where, you know, if you stand by what you believe and you say something, you may lose your job. And if you're not in a position where you can find an easy replacement for that job, what are you going to do? And so moral injury is part of that. It's bearing witness to or sometimes participating in something that goes against your own core values. And I think that, you know, when folks hear that, they're going to say, well, doesn't everyone do that to some extent on the job? Right. And I think that's true. Um, I mean, I think there is a kind of universal aspect to it, but I think it's more concentrated in the kinds of jobs that I look at in the book. And I should also say that my own belief and my, my hope is that the conversation about moral injury should not just be about individuals undergoing moral injury. It should also be about gender and about race and about class. In what way? Well, because... 
to go back to the Baldwin quote, those who have power, those who don't have power. I think that generally speaking, you are more susceptible to moral injury and more susceptible to all kinds of other psychological and and emotional wounds on the job, in your work, when you're receiving orders from someone else and you're at the bottom of the totem pole and you're in an institution that, you know, you got the job maybe not fully thinking through what the ethical consequences of what you were going to do are, and then you find yourself having to do it. That was very striking to me about the drone operators that I interviewed. A woman named Heather, who was from a small town in Pennsylvania and um, had no other way really to leave the town, to travel, maybe get a degree, other than to go to the military. So she goes to the military and she has no idea what the drone program is. And once she gets in it, she's really having trouble sleeping at night. These images that she sees of these drone strikes are haunting her, and she's grinding her teeth, and it's a description of moral injury. But we can't understand it without thinking about class, in her case, without thinking also about gender, and in other cases in the book, without thinking about race. I mean, the slaughterhouse section of my book, for example, a lot of it is about undocumented immigrants who are the people who work on the kill floors of industrial slaughterhouses. So I don't think this conversation should just look at individual workers, the conversation about moral injury. It should really be a bridge to a deeper conversation about inequality of class, race, and gender. And I think that specifically in that slaughterhouse section, I believe that, you know, you integrate the race and class debate. So many people want to separate critiques of race inequity and class inequity or say that you have to choose one or the other. And that's an example, I think, you know, where it's simply not going to be possible. What in particular led you to examine the plight of these particular workers? Well, you know, the first couple examples in the book of dirty work that I look at play out in public institutions, almost government institutions. So the prison story is a story of a state prison, right? In that sense, it's clear why we're all kind of implicated, or the drone program, right? This is a government policy, and we vote for the folks who okay it. But I wanted to look at another form of dirty work, which is the forms of dirty work that create the consumer goods we all sort of thoughtlessly consume, but there's a story behind those goods, right? I think we all kind of intuitively know that, right? but nothing dramatizes that more than the industrial food system in our country and sort of who works in it. I look specifically at poultry, the poultry industry, right? an industry that used to be pretty much all white, the workers, for very racist reasons. The plants in the South would not hire black workers. After the civil rights movement, some of those plants started becoming integrated. And not coincidentally, a lot of the white workers left because they didn't want to work in integrated plants. But the industry did diversify. But then in the 80s, 90s, and on into the 21st century, you had a huge influx of immigrant workers, many of them undocumented. And why, right? Why do these workers start to become so pervasive in this industry? Well, they're easily controlled. They're easily manipulated. They're easily replaced. They have often very little awareness of their rights and a lot of fear 
of asserting any kind of resistance to what a supervisor will say. And in the particular poultry slaughterhouse I write about, this results in the mostly Mexican female workers at the plant being so afraid to complain that they are denied bathroom breaks and they simply, some of them, adjust to this by going to work with an extra pair of pants oh. because, you know, during the one lunch break they get, they can't use the bathroom. And it's just, it's hard to imagine in 21st century America this being the case. And yet it is. And this is not a peripheral company. This is Sanderson Farms, one of the largest poultry slaughterhouses in the country. So to get back to your original point, I think you see in the meatpacking industry how race and class coalesce and influence who gets exploited and who can kind of, you know, avoid these situations. It's interesting you say, you know, it's hard to envision that in America, but of course it isn't. Um, I know that you're not saying that having written this book, but, you know, there are a lot of people who will read the things in your book and be like, what in the world is, how could this happen in this America that I've been taught is so exceptional and so beyond reproach that, you have people wearing two pairs of pants so to make sure they don't have to take bathroom breaks. I'm curious to know, in that light, what do you think about, you know, as we speak here in early April, the recent labor victories by workers at Amazon, by workers at Starbucks? Absolutely. I should say, I'm, I grew up in Buffalo, New York. So the Starbucks that organized originally got this whole kind of wave of organizing going in the Starbucks. I say with great pride that began in Buffalo. And I think it's fascinating that not just the class dimension of this, but the youth dimension of this. Mm -hmm. The fact that a lot of these workers are in their 20s and that if you look at polling on things like unions, you see that the younger you go, the more the workers feel they need a union to protect them. And so in that sense, I think that these organizing drives are potentially really important and represent a sea change in how this country maybe will, will not just think about work, but will think about inequality and address the incredibly disproportionate power that employers have been able to wield over their employees for decades now as wages have stagnated and, and so forth. Having said that, I think we also should be reflecting on the cynical misuse of the term essential workers throughout the pandemic. Mm. There's a scene in my book where I talk about Donald Trump during the Republican National Convention. It opens, and the very first night, he brings the essential workers in to salute them. Yeah. And who does he bring in? Well, he brings in basically a group of self-selected Trump-supporting. I don't know if they were all white, but they were predominantly. But what I didn't make note of is that there was not a slaughterhouse worker. There was not a poultry industry worker no one from the kill floors of the meatpacking industry. And, and that would have been awkward for Trump, right? Not only because of his rabid anti-immigrant racist rhetoric throughout his presidency and his policies to match that, but also because he invoked the Defense Production Act to force workers in the meatpacking sector back to their jobs without imposing any safety requirements on the companies that were employing these workers. And that is about who those workers are, right? It's a workforce that is predominantly black and brown. It's a workforce that is easily excluded from 
you know, those ceremonies saluting the essential workers that we saw. And I think we're at this inflection point where there's growing awareness of labor and, and labor issues, but there's also a lot of cynicism still from the political class. Oh, I, I mean, I, I could dig into this <laughs> deeply. I mean, we, you know, we have a society that seems to worship wealth and worship folks like Jeff Bezos, despite them being anti-union for <laughs> decades, we look highly upon them because they are these amazingly wealthy people. And for some reason, I guess, I don't know if I want to blame Robin Leach or Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous for this, or even Donald Trump himself, but it is just a real kind of a cultish mindset that we have in this country when we consider who is in fact successful and who is in fact the best. Absolutely. And I think that in my experience as a member of, you know, I'm mostly a magazine journalist, I think that one of the biggest problems, you know, in magazine journalism for the last 20, 30 years is that there have been too many stories about wealthy, successful people who should be admired and who are interesting because they're wealthy and successful. And too few stories about people who are excluded. And there is, I think, a correction underway, but you know, it's been a long time coming. And my God, I mean, the, the kinds of pieces that were written about just the Silicon Valley entrepreneurs as though this was, my book does end with a chapter, by the way, called Dirty Tech. Indeed. And that's intentional because it's sort of a, <laughs> it's clear to us now that Silicon Valley has just as much dirty work going on in the shadows as any other industry. But for 15, 20 years, it was seen as this kind of, you know, antithesis, this sort of beautiful and clean and high-minded world. You know, Google's mission was just to spread information and enable people to share it. Facebook's mission, right? I mean, you know, we think of that movie. <laughs> Are we talking about the original mission? Because... <laughs> Well, you know, the portrait in the Hollywood movie that I recall was, you know, a mixed one. But now when I look back at it, I think, my God, what a soft portrait that was, considering what we know now. So anyway, I've strayed a little bit, but I think that um, it's very exciting and interesting to see a rising interest in worker empowerment and people being able to have some say over what their jobs entail. And I think that's also reflected in how many people are deciding they don't want to go back to jobs they really didn't like, right? Right. Sort of what's being called the great resignation. So remains to be seen how all of this plays out. Well, one thing I did want to ask specifically with regards to this, how exactly do you think that the drive towards unionization at places like Amazon and Starbucks will help those who are stuck in these dirty jobs? I mean, will labor bargain some of that dirtiness away or just make sure that people are paid more for compromising their dignity or morals? Well, Jamila, I think that the most important basic fact that's implicit in your question is that these things can be altered, right? I can't say whether the poultry industry that I wrote about will experience a wave of unionization that really empowers the folks like the ones I wrote about who felt so exploited and abused. I, I don't know. But what I can say is that it would certainly make a difference if that happened. And in fact, in the section of the book on the industrial slaughterhouses, I talk about how, you know, we've kind of come full circle because back a hundred years ago was the days of, of Upton Sinclair's jungle. And there, again, it was an immigrant workforce that was brutally exploited. And 
you know, the conditions shocked and appalled those who witnessed them and read about them. But things changed in the 30s and 40s and 50s in meatpacking. Why did they change? Well, there were powerful unions, in particular a union that actually was progressive, not just in empowering workers, but in integrating the union membership and making sure that black and white workers in the plants saw each other as fighting for a common cause. And that raised wages, it improved conditions, but then it reverted back when the industry responded by relocating plants outside of cities like Chicago, going again far afield to these rural areas, and recruiting an immigrant workforce that they could exploit more easily, and going with what some of the scholars of this industry call a low-wage strategy. You know, bring the wages down, bust up the unions, and bring it back, in a sense, to Upton Sinclair's jungle. That actually makes me think of a different book, Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. There's a quote at the end of it which says, who knows but that on the lower frequencies, I speak for you. How do we restore the vision of those who just refuse to see other people, many of whom are maintaining the institutions that those powerful people rely upon? Yeah, so that's a great question. I think, you know, one of the central ideas in my book is that dirty work is intentionally placed behind the scenes of social life. And that's a phrase that I take from a social theorist named Norbert Elias. He wrote this big book called The Civilizing Process. And it sounds really nice, right? The Civilizing Process. It's this thing where it's actually a book about morals and manners and how, you know, over time, things that we consider unpleasant, like blowing your nose at the table. You don't do that. You do that in private or carving an animal, right? That's done in the kitchen. It's not done at the table. So you're reading this book and thinking, oh, this is a story of progress, but it's not a story of progress because what Elias is arguing in that book is that the civilizing process is about pushing these, what he calls disturbing events behind the scenes of social life. Right? So we push them out of sight, in a sense. And to get back to your question, you know, I think that is very fundamental to dirty work in our society. It's there, but we don't actually see it. Right? How often do you actually see what goes on on the kill floor of a slaughterhouse? How often do we see the footage of a drone strike? How often do we see inside the mental health ward of a prison? We don't very often. We know it's there. It's not that it's a mystery to us. It's abstract. And there's a, such a big difference between the abstract and the particular and the concrete. Mm-hmm. And the particular is, you know, enormous. And it plays out in so many different realms. And it certainly plays out, I think, when there's an invisible workforce out there kind of doing these jobs. But we don't see them on the nightly news. We don't hear their voices. We don't talk to them. We don't particularize it. And I tried in my book to make it very particular for that reason. And in that respect, I actually wonder how much these moral injuries suffered by those doing the dirty work are generational. I think back to the beginning of your book, you know, when you talk about sociologist Everett Hughes and his trip to a broken Germany after the fall of Nazism, can you sum up you know, why not only you chose to introduce dirty work through this story, but also I'm interested to know, you know, considering how we've seen through generations in Germany, 
but also generations of trauma from slavery have affected African-Americans. These things definitely don't stop when someone either you know, leaves a job or retires or dies. That's absolutely true. So I should say, the idea of dirty work in my book, I didn't come up with it. I'm revisiting a set of questions that this sociologist, Everett Hughes, posed after he spent a semester. This was in post-war Germany, 1948, right? So it's right after the Holocaust. And he's talking to these educated liberal Germans, you know, these professionals. And he asks them, you know, well, what do you make of what just happened here? You know, the atrocities, the destruction of European Jews that took place in your country. And, you know, the people he speaks to, this one architect tells him, well, you know, I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed of this. It was terrible pressure we were under, but of course I'm ashamed of it, which is exactly what you'd expect someone of his class to say. But then he goes on to say, but you know, the Jews, they really were a problem. They were filthy. They were gathering in these ghettos. They were taking all the good jobs. And Hughes keeps hearing this kind of on the one hand, on the other hand. On the one hand, I'm ashamed of it. On the other hand, you know, the Jews kind of had it coming to them. And out of this, he formulates this idea, this essay that is titled Good People and Dirty Work. And what he says in that essay is that the dirty work of taking care of the Jewish problem that the Nazis took up was not some rogue action, right? It was not done without any involvement or relationship to the rest of society, but rather with the kind of what he called an unconscious mandate from the good people, from people like that architect who saw the Jews as a problem. And once you see them as a problem, you kind of define them out of the conversation of the good people, then it's very easy and a short step to not wanting to hear what's going on. And what to me is most fascinating about Hughes' essay is he wasn't writing it with Germany in mind. Mm -hmm. He was actually, he was an American sociologist from the University of Chicago. And when he subsequently publishes this essay and gets some feedback from different scholars who say, well, but what about this in Germany? What about that? They question some of what he says about Nazi Germany. And he responds by saying, I wasn't writing this with Nazi Germany in mind. I was writing it with the United States, my own country in mind, right? And he literally goes on to say, you know, the amount of racial violence and private lynching and brutality that we tolerate in this society and don't seem to feel implicated in. He basically is saying, this is our dirty work, right? And it's going on and has a similar kind of unconscious mandate from society. And I was so struck by that. I thought, well, okay, it's no longer post-World War II, but What if we take that same set of questions to contemporary America? Who's doing the dirty work here? How much of a mandate does it have from a society that kind of just doesn't want to hear too much about it because it's too upsetting? And so from that, I kind of decided to write this book. And I do think that it is intergenerational in that, you know, the first part of my book is about mass incarceration. And that's a story that begins 40, 50 years ago. But we are still living it, and it's still playing out today. I mean, I'd argue the story of mass incarceration dates back more than about 400 years. (laughs) 200, 240. I was going to say it dates back to chattel slavery, brother, but we could have that conversation another time. (laughs) But I'm also curious, just, you know, I remember first hearing about your book, and as someone with family members who worked as custodians, firemen, steel workers, and more— 
you know, I found myself thinking that there were innumerable dirty jobs that, you know, you could maybe spotlight. Maybe not you in particular, but all of us could spotlight. And also there are other jobs that I guess you could say are these cogs in the machine who, you know, could be thought of as enablers, but aren't. I'm just curious to know, are there any particular professions that you maybe wanted to investigate or still plan to? Yeah, I mean, I, you're absolutely right. My book is not a comprehensive account in any way of dirty work. And I am pretty explicit about that in the beginning, that I wanted to, to choose different forms of it, but a whole different book could be written about a different set of workers that explore similar themes and questions. Border guards, for example. We've had some glimpse into that, but you know, I'm not just talking about the sort of openly Trump-supporting folks, but you know, also the people in border towns where there may not be a lot of other jobs and they get sucked into this and then they're participating in turning back folks that may remind them of, of their own stories a couple generations back. Um, there's a great book by Francisco Cantu recounting his experience working, basically going through deserts to find migrants and to turn them away. And as he's doing this work, he starts to experience these nightmares and to grind his teeth. And eventually in his book, he talks about moral injury. And so there it is, you know, this, this similar set of questions arising. I didn't have the sort of opportunity to go deep into that world, but you could certainly explore it there. I think that to some extent, as I was saying earlier, moral injury and some of the sort of psychological and emotional costs of work, this is really unexplored terrain. And it's there in so many different kinds of jobs that we don't think of in this way. You know, I'm thinking of nurses. I don't say much, I don't say anything really about nurses in my book, but we certainly know during the pandemic, uh, we've seen nurses coming forward to talk about the situations they've been in, understaffed and pushed and forced into really difficult situations. Nursing home workers, you know, just, it goes on and on. I know we touched upon this earlier, but do you think we're all compromised or complicit in some way in this system of dirty work, even if we're not doing it ourselves? Yeah, definitely. I think there are gradations. So I don't want to suggest that anyone who eats chicken shares the same kind of responsibility for the exploitation of the poultry workers I write about, that they share the same responsibility as Sanderson Farms, the CEO and the folks who are reaping profits from this misery. It's not the same, right? There are gradations. In the case of prisons, there are a lot of Americans, especially now, who actively are pushing to shut prisons down, to reduce the prison population, to reverse mass incarceration. So to just say everyone is equally complicit in the abuses that I write about taking place at the Dade Correctional Institution, that's not fair, right? And I do talk about that a little bit in the book. In the prison section, I write about a woman who forms an organization called The Forgotten Majority, Judy Thompson, mm -hmm. because her son ends up getting swept up in Florida's incredibly punitive criminal justice system. And it opens her eyes to the incredible brutality and abuse that's going on inside these prisons because she starts to get letters from incarcerated people about the conditions they're enduring. And 
she's fighting every day to try to change that system. So is she complicit in the same way? No, she's not, right? She's trying to shed light on the system. And in each section of my book, there are folks pushing against the system of dirty work that I look at. But I also think there are in America a lot of these quote-unquote good people, to go back to that Everett Hughes essay. And what he meant by that was, you know, people who will say, if pressed or challenged, oh, yeah, you know, a drone strike that hits an innocent, you know, wedding procession, that's terrible. Or abuses of mentally ill people who are incarcerated, that's awful. We shouldn't be doing that. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, are able to really distance themselves and push those things out of mind so that, you know, it's the occasional thing that comes up at a dinner conversation, but it isn't actually experienced as a lived reality in our society. And we do, in fact, live in a society that has turned jails and prisons into the largest mental health institutions we have. And the suffering that goes on there is a collective enterprise, right? So in that sense, I do think there's a huge amount of shared responsibility and complicity. We're going to take one last quick break, but when we come back, so there's dirty work, but what's the term for work that's dressed up and clean and shiny on the outside, but deeply dirty and unethical on the inside. Support for the gray area comes from Bombas. How's your sock drawer looking these days? Underwhelming? Is it the seat of all your disappointments, a wasteland of unmatched sandpaper rough foot sleeves? Well, this spring, you can start looking forward to opening that sock drawer again with Bombas. Finally, I have something to look forward to. Bombas socks have all kinds of features like honeycomb arch support, anti-blister tabs, and cushioned footbeds. Bombas also sells clothes for other body parts like t-shirts and underwear. Also, Bombas wants to make returns and exchanges easy with their 100% happiness guarantee. So if the dryer or anything else eats a sock, or if you're unhappy with your purchase for virtually any reason, they say they'll do whatever they can to replace it or make it right. Bombas sent me a few pairs of socks a while back, and they're my favorite socks. I'm literally wearing a pair right now. I know I'm supposed to say nice things here, but it's true. So there you go. You can get comfy this spring and get back with Bombas. Head over to bombas.com slash gray area and use code gray area for 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash gray area and use code gray area at checkout. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Now, 
what is the opposite of dirty work? Mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> you know, when I saw the title, I'm thinking, okay, there's any way, number of ways you can describe this. And I'm not just talking about the Steely Dan song. I'm talking about how white collar workers do what we might regard to be dirty work, just in a different sense. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because when I was telling some friends that I was writing this book and they didn't know anything about it, they were like, oh, you mean like corporate lobbyists? You mean Wall Street? Like people who sell those <laughs> those shady Wall Street products that destroyed the whole global economy? Yeah, big oil. I mean, keep going. Yeah, exactly, right? So I don't in any way deny that some of the highest paying most powerful jobs in American life, in American society, are deeply unethical and extremely profitable. Um, We can think of, you know, the Sackler family described in Patrick Radenkeefe's great book. This is the real dirty work, you could argue, but there is a big difference. And I talk about it kind of early in, in the introduction to my book. You know, I'm interested in work that feels dirtying and stigmatizing and sullying and demeaning for the people who do it. And if we think about bankers, even after the great financial meltdown in 2008 that causes so much suffering, right? So many people lose their livelihoods and so much pain in so many communities. And yet when Obama dares to criticize you know, Wall Street, there's immediate pushback. There's indignation and outrage that he dares to do this. And to me, that indignation reflects the power that these industries have. You know, not just the financial power, but the social and cultural power. Right. And that is not something that the folks I write about in this book have, right? Generally speaking, they don't have platforms. They don't get to tell the New York Times, the president should not be talking about our industry that way. How dare he? They don't get to, you know, spend all this money influencing how they are seen and perceived by society. So I think that fundamentally, when we think about things like stigma and moral injury and shame, we have to think about them as a function of power and who has it and who doesn't in our society. I'm trying to think about how we fix this. And, you know, of course, part of the solution will probably have to be political. I'm thinking about what President Biden did just this past January, issuing an executive order declaring that 70,000 federal workers were going to immediately start earning $15 per hour and that 300,000 employees of federal contractors were going to see a raise to $15 per hour reflected in their paychecks over the course of the year. One of the things he brought up was it's about dignity. It's not just about a paycheck. And I'm wondering how you think embracing dignity in the workplace might help get us further towards labor equity, or will it not have that much of an effect at all? I noticed that as well. And, and, you know, I think Biden has made a point of talking about labor as something more than just a paycheck, right? That it is about your place in the community. It is about dignity. It is about your pride, or it should be in a society that values work. And so, you know, in terms of fixing, there's not a lot in my book on solutions. And, you know, partly that's just because 
I'm not a policy expert. I can't claim to deliver a set of proposals that could be translated into policy that will change this. And also because I actually think that dirty work, it doesn't just grow out of policy. It grows out of culture. Mm. You know, it reflects something really deep about what we're willing to countenance in our society and how we want that arranged so that we don't feel bad about ourselves. So we don't have to think of Everett Hughes. In the case of Nazi Germany, we can think of chattel slavery in this country. And I mentioned briefly in, in the book, after 1808, when slaves were no longer imported, it gave rise to the, the slave trade within the United States. Mm-hmm. And what took place was a system for removing it from sight. Right, You weren't supposed to see these coffles being dragged through the streets if you were a Southern gentleman, and you were supposedly separate from that. Right. And that is so fundamental to what antebellum America was, right? It's the core of, of what is being done, and yet there's this desire to deny a connection to the, the violence and the horror of it. And in a much less extreme way, the examples in my book speak to arrangements that I think we've reached because they are convenient mm-hmm. in one form or another, right? It's convenient to have an industrial meat system where you would never actually see the animals getting slaughtered or the workers being treated the way they are. It's convenient to fight wars in this kind of invisible way where the footage isn't shown to us. And yet, to change those things, we really have to change our values, not just our laws. And we have to have conversations about, should we even be tolerating this? That's another reason I I didn't go into the solution side of it too much, because I feel like the real solution is a transformation of who we are. If we think about mass incarceration, you know, to really change this just immense system of cruelty and, and punishment... We have to change who we are. We have to change what we're willing to be. You know, are we willing? Are we there? I, I don't know. I don't think we're even close. I mean, I look at what you're saying, and it's like to me, accountability is the death of American exceptionalism. If we actually take account for all of these various horrors that through this country's gestational period, it sought to hide from itself, and we got used to that. We got used to being this type of America. Yeah, definitely. We become accustomed to, you know, buying fast food whose ecological and other social costs are invisible to us, just as we've become accustomed to not being horrified that, you know, the Cook County Jail in Chicago is the largest mental health institution in the state of Illinois. To the extent that changes, I think it can change, but it will take a lot to do it. Hey, All Press, thank you for taking the time to join me on Box Conversations. Appreciate it very much. Thanks so much. Really an honor to be here. Box Conversations is produced by Eric Janikas. Our editor is Amy Drozdowska. Patrick Boyd mixed and mastered this episode. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And Amber Hall is the Deputy Editorial Director of Vox Talk. If you like the show, let us know. Room for improvement? We want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, and what we could improve. 
And if you have ideas for future guests or topics, send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. Hey, if you did like this episode, share it with your friends and please rate and review. And join us on Monday for a brand new episode of Vox Conversations. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. Support for this podcast came from SAS. Data is everything. And now everything is data, which means more to process, more to analyze. And now more than ever, speed to answers matters. So how do you produce those answers as fast as the world produces data? With SAS VIA, the quickest way from a billion points of data to a point of view. It's a more productive data and AI platform that helps you get more done. Learn more today at sas.com slash V-I-Y-A.